Well, we're going to continue in our series on the Holy Spirit. Um, and, you know, we began uh, looking at kind of an overall theology of the Spirit as a person, uh, as the third person in the Trinity, uh, that God is one God revealed to us in three persons, that God within himself is a community, that the reason we long for relationships is because we're made in the image of a relational God. Uh, and that the gospel actually restores that ability to have right relationship with one another. Uh, and that the spirit is often confused because uh, we recognize there is no name under heaven by which one can be saved other than the name of Jesus. And that the son often talked about the father, but the spirit often goes uh, as one who is misunderstood and seen more as a force or an energy rather than a personality. And the opening message was to help us develop a, a proper understanding that the Spirit is not a force to be wielded, um, but he is a part of the Godhead. He is a person who wants to be known intimately. Uh, the second week, we considered the Spirit's activity in the Old Testament. And the reason that we did that was to develop that the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament is the work that he continues to do today. It's just that we have a more full and robust picture of the Spirit because uh, through the gospel, a unique relationship occurs under the new covenant in which the Spirit actually comes and, and lives within the hearts of believers where we become literally the temple of God. But he's still a Spirit who is creative. He creates new creations in us as we put our faith in Christ, as we'll consider today. He anoints ch the children of God to actually participate in God's kingdom purposes. Uh, he is the spirit of prophecy, which is that, as Paul said, I desire that all of you would prophesy. And we looked at prophecy as being conduits by which God can communicate his truth uh, to a world that is lost. Last week, we considered that, that whole, the whole mission of the Spirit is to make known the person of Jesus. In fact, J.I. Packer said it best when he says that the Spirit of God is a flashlight or a floodlight on the person of Jesus. Uh, that the Spirit is a Spirit of truth who brings to remembrance all that Jesus has said, who points the world, convicts and convinces the world, as we looked at the threefold conviction of the Spirit in John chapter 16 last week, to show that the Spirit comes uh, to empower us that we might be vessels by which the witness to the person of Christ would be known. Well, I want to begin to actually look at uh, the Spirit's work in the individual uh, today and really look at three specific words that are directly connected to the role of the Holy Spirit, and that is regeneration, baptism, uh, and fullness. And there's a lot of confusion around these words, especially uh, the, the phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so I want to hopefully clarify uh, and amplify what the scripture says. Uh, and I want to begin by reading to you um, a passage from the Upper Room Discourse. And I've, I've leaned really heavily into the Upper Room Discourse because the best way to learn about the heart of God is to listen to the words of God himself and Jesus defining for us the role of the Spirit, the helper, the paraclete, um, so profoundly the night of his betrayal in John chapter 14 uh, through 16, we have a very robust picture of the promise of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said in John 14, uh, verses 15 through 17, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Uh, there always a connection to uh, our part and the divine part. Our part is, is repentance and faith or faith and obedience. Uh, but his part, he says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Notice the Trinity in that singular verse. I will ask the Father, 
Jesus will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Jesus says, I've been up to this point your paraclete. I have been your comforter, your teacher, your counselor. Uh, But there's going to be another one that comes just like me. In fact, so much like me, he says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come again to you just after he finishes saying, I will send to you another helper. Uh, And this is what uh, F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, calls the vanishing distinction. In one breath, Jesus seems to be talking about himself, then about the Father, then about the Spirit. And then the same thing he says about the Spirit, he says about himself, and then he says it about the Father. And you're like, who's he talking about exactly? Uh, Because God is a trinity. He is a communion within himself. And he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So he already is saying that the Holy Spirit himself will be a gift that comes to all believers. He's looking through the cross, through his death, through his resurrection, to his ascension, to Pentecost and the sending of the Holy Spirit to abide in people. And he says, even the spirit of truth, and I want you to notice this, whom the world cannot receive. Now, we looked at, I want you to see that this is not a contradiction in terms. We looked at the spirit in the Old Testament as the Ruach of God, the very life-giving source uh, for all life in the world, that it takes God's spirit for creation to be sustained and contained, uh, and that, that there is that reality. So what does he mean then, the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, is that there's always a distinction uh, in, in theology between ontological truth, that is the very being of God or the presence of God, versus relational truth. Uh, And so even when it says uh, of hell, it says that they will be cast out from the presence of God. Uh, It's not talking about them being put away from where God is because there is nowhere that God is not. It's talking about there will be inability for there to be relationship. And I think that here is is a picture that the spirit is sustaining life as we know it, but relational knowledge of the spirit, the unique manifestation that comes when, uh, when the Spirit abides within the believer uh, is, what, is what Jesus is actually looking to. Because he says, the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. And who's he talking about there? Himself. For he dwells with you and will be in you. This is why Jesus said, greater things than these will you do uh, than what you've seen in me. Because there's gonna be a point where I actually come back And he says, whoever loves me and keeps my commandments, my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home within him. That Jesus shows us what it looks like to tabernacle, to be the very temple of God. What what they saw in Jesus was fully spirit-filled, controlled life. Jesus only did those things that pleased the father. He did everything under the influence of the spirit. When he was baptized, the spirit descended upon him like a dove. And then it says, and the spirit drove him into the wilderness, completely under the control and the authority of the spirit of God. And he says, you have seen that modeled in me. I, the paraclete, have been with you, but I am sending to you another paraclete, another helper, and he will come and make his home within you. And that is me. And so this vanishing distinction, this personality, this realization that God is going to actually accomplish through his church, through you and I, the same thing that he accomplished through Jesus, that Jesus comes to make himself known to the world through his children. And so this promise of the spirit is so powerful for you know him for he dwells with you, but he's not in them yet. And this is something that we see in the beginning of Acts is that 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 cannot happen until the gospel has been completed. That is until the death on the cross 
the sin bearer, fully conquers death and sin and the dominions of darkness. Jesus, the judge and judged on our behalf. And death could not keep him because he is the author of life. And it says on the third day, he rose again and he appeared to them. And in John 20, it says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit symbolically of what was going to come. And he says, go and wait for the promised one. Go and pray and wait until you are empowered from on high and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the world. And there at Pentecost, the birth of the church, and this is where we begin to see what real regeneration, what baptism and what fullness actually looks like. And so I I just think it's important to set up that Jesus is already promising this and he gives us a a, a look into what is coming. We're actually experiencing the effects of what he promised to his disciples. So regeneration is is the initiating work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Regeneration speaks of the spirit in us. So when sin entered the world, what happened was not that God is no longer present in his world, but relational presence was destroyed. And so something was broken, fundamentally distorted in the heart of man. God didn't turn his back on the world. Like the, the way that it's sometimes been theologically described is that the spirit of God, uh, the spirit of God departed from man and man became um, dead in his sins and trespasses, and God went his way and man went his way. No, man turned his back on God, but God is continually entering into man's broken story, making himself known, reminding through particular vessels throughout the redemptive story of Scripture that he is a God who loves, who cares, who sustains, who created, and has every intention of restoring to himself his creation. And the power of regeneration is that the promise, which is promised in the Old Testament, is that under the new covenant, that our faith in Christ would actually put Christ into us. (coughs) Excuse me. I'm almost going to have a cough attack just now. (coughs) I've been having allergies. How about you? My wife said that she wants to itch her eyeballs out of her head, and I just feel like I'm going to cough all the time and choke. (coughs) Well, it'll be good, though. It'll give me a sense of urgency when I preach. You'll feel like he really means what he's saying because my eyes will start watering (laughs) in just a second. So, um, (coughs) excuse me. So this idea of regeneration is, is the picture of new life. Now, one of the things that is difficult for those who have been born into a Christian family, who have grown up in the church, is that it's difficult for you to believe, really believe, that there was a point where you were dead, dead in your sins and trespasses. And at some point, you came to life. Now, there is a phrase that Jesus utilizes to describe this spirit's initiating work, and it's found in John chapter 3. And for some reason, millennials really have a problem with this phrase, and it is the phrase born again. I don't know why, but when you hear the word born again, you just think of American evangelicalism. You think of that really, um, really upsetting movie, Saved. And if you don't know what that movie is, probably continue to not know what that movie is although there is some poignant insights into suburban American Christian life. But the idea of being born again has been tainted by, um, by the, the, the cartoon caricatures of the American born-again Christian. But the fact is, is that you should not be offended by something that Jesus said was absolutely necessary to enter into the kingdom of God. It should be something that is beautiful, that is sacred, and it shows us that it's not enough to just believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believe that he died for our sins to get us out of hell, to get us into heaven, but that actually his saving work is meant to actually take 
action within our lives by his spirit that we actually need a new birth in order to be in a right relationship with God. Everything about the Christian life is about a restoration of relationship in three directions. And regeneration is the initiation. This is why to be born again is to bring about new life. That is assurance. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I want you to note that baptism of the spirit both the baptism, the physical act, the sacrament of baptism, and the baptism of the Spirit are, are not separated in Scripture. There's a, there is a line of demarcation that the spiritual activity is, is played out in the physical sacrament. Uh, and here, this idea of regeneration, what we're going to see is that regeneration and baptism of the Spirit are directly linked Regeneration speaks of God's spirit coming to dwell within us, making his home within us. Ephesians chapter two, verse one, it says, and you he made alive. Oh, thank you. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, that we were once dead and now that now we're alive. Salvation is not achieved by association, but by the new birth through faith in Christ. And so the side note, as I stated on the first week, is that the spirit of God in man, that is relationally in man, was God's plan from the beginning. That when it says in Proverbs 20, verse 27, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. The idea is that a lamp without oil, the spirit symbol is like oil, that a lamp without oil may be a lamp, but it cannot function like a lamp is supposed to function. And so it is that you and I, without the spirit of God within us, we may be human beings, but we do not function like God intended humans to function. Because what God intended was for us to be in intimate relationship with him. And so the new birth brings about the possibility of real intimacy. And this is why the, the whole um, millennial concept that faith is a journey and salvation is something that you work toward. Um, it is true that we have been saved, we are being saved and shall be saved, but every journey has a starting point. And unless you've entered into the narrow gate, unless you've recognized Jesus as the way, it's not something that you grow, it's not like someday you'll know for sure you're saved. We're actually called to know. There's a promise of assurance that comes. It's the whole reason that God saves us and puts his spirit within us. We should know what it's like to be alive in Christ. It's actually promised. And if you don't know that, I mean, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, they know me and they follow me. If we don't know his voice, if we don't follow him, if we don't know him, then there's something fundamentally wrong with our concept of what salvation is about because it's not meant to be this ambiguous, I hope I'm saved. The whole purpose of the spirit coming into our life is to bring assurance through the new life. It's the seal and the guarantee, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, who also sealed us and has given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. What good is a guarantee if you're not guaranteed it's there? It's just a question. I think a good one. It's not a trick question. So not only does he bring new life, regeneration, the spirit's activity in us, it also brings about new freedom. If one is about this assurance, new life brings assurance, new freedom is about our liberation. This is a word that we considered in the, in the vocabulary of faith, is that the liberation of the Christian, as Karl Barth said, that if the gospel is anything, it is a gospel of freedom. He sets us free. This is what Second Corinthians, or excuse me, um, Romans 8 verse 2 says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What does he set us free to do? 
He doesn't set us free to do what we want. He sets us free to do what is right. He empowers us. There is a unique empowerment from the presence of God. He actually comes to help us. He's a helper. It's, it's interesting that marriage is such a powerful picture of that, that what does it say in, in Genesis of Adam before Eve is there? It says that there was no helper suitable for him. It wasn't that, that Eve was to come along and fulfill every uh, the man's dreams and purposes. That's, not, that's a really unfortunate vision of the Genesis account. Some of you guys are like, dang it, really? That's just not, not what it was intended. It was someone to come alongside and to complete, that the two together would actually fulfill a right image of God. And I think that the picture is played out for each individual believer as we put our faith in Christ. He puts his spirit in us that with the spirit of God within us, that together in communion, we become a right reflection of what God intended. And so here, this, this reality of liberation, the spirit, wherever the Lord, it says, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That the spirit of God frees us from the, the weight and the guilt and the shame of sin and brokenness. We recognize that I have been born again, that yes, I am a sinner, but in Christ, I am a saint that by the Spirit of God, I have the power to actually live differently. I think that this is something that is so important because I, it is so tragic to me when a Christian lives a defeated life, a life that is marked by insecurity, a, a life that is marked by a lack of assurance, a life that is marked by continuation in patterns of sin that break communion with God. When God has given us his Spirit to overcome, we should be overcomers. This is the promise of Scripture, which brings me to another reality that comes out of regeneration, which is its new influence. The Spirit comes to influence us. As the teacher, he brings about sanctification. So assurance, assurance, liberation, sanctification are the outcomes of this reality of the Spirit's regenerating work in us. Romans 15, 16 says that we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What a powerful passage. That sanctification means that it's, we never arrive, but we have a starting point. The Spirit comes, and as we grow in intimacy with Christ, we reflect him more and more. This is why I think it's, I've been married for 20 years. Um, October 4th, we'll have our 20-year anniversary. In 21 years with Darcy, the longer we live together, there is this weird, like, where we even kind of dress alike now. Like, I don't, I'm trying to be weird here, but I mean, there's just like, there's just like, there's similarities, there's statements. I've noticed this with couples that I spend time with, that the husband and wife have words that they say. It's just like that much time together, that much life together. If you're really in a healthy intimacy where you're, where her desires have become my, like, I never cared about gardening. Now I'm like sending darts. I was at the grocery store. I'm like, should I get this dahlia? It's really beautiful. It's like a cool color of lavender I haven't seen before. And she's like, she's like, I can't even tell you how sexy that is that you just asked it. And I'm like, I know, I know. This is the beauty of, of it's new influence. My wife's influence upon my life changed how I live, changed how I act, changed my eating habits. I used to just eat with no table manners as fast as I could so I can get on to the next thing. My wife, as a new influence, taught me to slow down and enjoy a meal. 
She also taught me the beauty and the joy of having a clean house and clean laundry as opposed to my 20s where I thought if it stayed on the bottom of the pile, that was the one that was going to get clean the fastest. You know that? It's bad habits, bad habits. The point is, is that the Spirit comes to influence the way that we live, to change the trajectory of how we live because he comes to bring the very heart of Christ. It says, but we have the mind of Christ. What Paul is saying is that you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. That's what that means. And so the question is, I often say, it's not, is he a good teacher or are you a good student? Our sanctification it comes, flows out of our regeneration. So what about, I think, in just one final verse, one of the great promise passages of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, 27, it says, I will put my spirit within you. And how does he do that? Through our faith in Christ, our repentance and faith in Jesus, his spirit comes within us and he says, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. The commands of God become promises under the control of the Spirit because that new influence actually supernaturally enables us to do things that we were not able to do before, which is to remain close to Jesus, which is the whole heartbeat of Christian life. And so what is the baptism of the Spirit then? This is one where there has been a tremendous amount of controversy. If regeneration is the Spirit in us, what is the baptism of the Spirit? Well, what does the word baptism mean? It literally means to be immersed in. We understand what it's like to be immersed in something, to be given fully to something. And think about the actual physical act of baptism, that you are what? put. On, this is why we hold to, we're very Baptistic, Baptist in our practice of baptism, which actually we'll do at the end of next month. And this is an important thing. Jesus himself was baptized as an example to us as his full identification with our sinfulness, our brokenness. And we are now, he said his great commission was go and baptize uh, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is a crucial act of obedience, but it's one of the acts, it's directly connected to the spiritual reality of baptism of the Spirit, which is the, it is the initiation of the believer into the community of faith. And so baptism is, if regeneration is the Spirit in us, he comes to make his home within us, we become literally the temple of God. Baptism is us in the Spirit. It's immersion into the life of Christ. It's also immersion into the family of Christ. So baptism is, is being placed into. Now, what happened is that in the early 20th century, um, under the influence of the Pentecostal movement, uh, the baptism of the Spirit came to mean um, second blessing. So there was almost two baptisms. There's the you're born again and you're baptized in water, and then there's the waiting uh, for the, this second blessing or this supernatural filling. And it, and it often is accompanied in some Pentecostal movements, the sign of a true baptism of the Spirit is accompanied by the gift of tongues. The problem with that is that it actually does not align with the utilization of the word baptism in the scripture. And it's drawn more from a theological grid that's created out of a historical book of Acts than it is from the epistles or even the teachings of Jesus himself. And I would say that the baptism, firstly, baptism, like justification, is done for us. You can't baptize yourself. I had a girl once, when I baptized her, try to baptize herself. She was so excited. She, like, I had to catch her so that I could baptize her. Because she was like, I'm ready, and just threw herself backwards. Um, so I, 
that's cool, but you wouldn't be impressed if you just went like, okay, we're going to do baptisms today, and we're like, you just go out there and just throw yourself backwards. No, like the whole significance of it is even, there's even a trust component in the act of baptism where you're, you're entrusting, uh, entrusting me when I baptize you to hold you up, to put you under. It's all symbolic of this immersion into the life of Christ, immersion. You have, you have baptized into his death and his resurrection. You are baptized into one body. It's a unifying reality. It's an immersion into the life of Christ. And it directly corresponds actually to, re, to regeneration. Secondly, baptism, like justification, is once and for all, it's, it's, it's unrepeatable. It's not, there is no second baptism. Now, I want to be quick to clarify. We're going to look at fullness. What Pentecostals refer to as the baptism of the Spirit, I do not disagree with what they define as the experience. I just don't like the language they use. I don't, I think they use a non, I think they use a biblical phrase incorrectly to describe a very real experience. I would never disregard the, the, the overwhelming what, Wesley called as the second blessing or what D.L. Moody experienced on Wall Street when the presence of God came upon him so intensely <clears throat> that he had to go back to his hotel room because he couldn't move under, under the influence. You know, one of the key guys that really in, uh, influenced the Pentecostal usage of the baptism of the Spirit is one of my favorite authors, and I just disagree with his usage of this word, of this phrase, is R.A. Torrey, who wrote the Holy Spirit, who he is and what he does. And there's a whole section on the baptism of the Spirit. And it was a lot of it is implemented by Tory's belief in emulating what they did in Acts, which is these prayer meetings, praying for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And he would talk about it when they would experience the presence in a unique supernatural way as a baptism of the Spirit. I would call that, a, I would call that filling. So it's not that I disagree with the, uh, with the experience. I just disagree with the language. And I think language matters. I think how we utilize, God has given us a unique language to define who we are, and we should use it correctly. And we should use it biblically, not create an experiential mode of how we utilize language incorrectly, because it actually does damage to, the, to how we understand the gospel. Um, thirdly, baptism, like justification, speaks of incorporation into Christ and into his body. So I think, that, I think that Michael Green says it best in his book, um, I Believe in the Holy Spirit. He says, it is the unrepeatable sacrament of Christian beginnings. Baptism includes the idea of sonship, of entry into the kingdom, of incorporation into Christ, of reception of his spirit, of justification. Now, here's the thing. Where a lot of the Pentecostal usage of the baptism of the Spirit comes from is actually what we see occur in the first couple chapters of Acts. And so one of the things is that the, the disciples were told to go and wait for the coming of the promise of the Holy Spirit. And they were, they were to pray, they were gathered together in prayer, and they prayed and prayed, and they waited. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell upon them in power. And it says that they were filled with the Spirit, and they went out communicating with boldness the Word of God. And people were freaking out, and they thought they were drunk, and they, all these things that are stated about it. Here's the thing. That was the beginning, the initiation of the church. The baptism of the Spirit was the birthplace uh, that, that occurred at Pentecost. And it actually, believers are never told to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. The promise comes in the Gospels when Jesus says, uh, his, I indeed, or John says, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.5, Jesus said, for John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And, and all the seven times it appears in the scriptures, but it's always looking to Pentecost. 
It's looking to the birthplace, the baptism of the Spirit bringing about the birth of the church. And that is not something that is repeated. So regeneration now is, is the means by which baptism and regeneration correspond. You are filled with the Spirit and put into the family of God the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ. And that is the reality. You get all the Spirit you will ever get because he's not something, he's someone. And so this reality that the Christians are not only are they not told to be baptized with the Spirit, we're also never told to wait for the Spirit. We're told to be filled with the Spirit, which speaks of an always available presence. We have as much of the Spirit of God that is relational understanding and intimacy as we choose to have. Our command, we're commanded to be filled, which tells us that there's something possible, just like a marriage, it's possible for me to not have a very healthy intimacy with Darcy. It's possible as a married couple to live like your strangers. It's possible to live like roommates. Intimacy is driven by a willingness to surrender to one another by which you can grow in that relationship in depth, but it requires effort. And this is Paul's, Paul's declaration. And when he says of baptism, he says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, that's for those of you who've been born again, you have put on Christ. And so Christ in you, you in Christ. Again, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. So it always speaks when you get into the epistles after Pentecost is that the baptism of the spirit corresponds to regeneration. So regeneration, us in Christ, baptism, uh, or excuse me, Christ in us, baptism, us in Christ. It speaks of this new position, and also this new relationship, not only with God, but with one another. It's the unifying reality of the Spirit's activity in the believer's life. And so what is the Pentecostal uh, focus on the baptism of the Spirit? What are they really dealing with? And I would argue that what they're dealing with is the very real possibility of experiencing in increasing degrees of intimacy the very presence of Christ by his Spirit through our yieldedness, which is what we call fullness. And this is where I want to close today. So the fullness of the Spirit... If regeneration is the spirit in us, making us the temple of God, if baptism is our immersion into the body of Christ and into the, or into the life of Christ and into his body, then fullness is the spirit's full control of us. So this is permeated with the spirit or even perfected uh, in the spirit. It's a new dynamic, a new power. And this is what it, was, it said in Acts 1.8, when the spirit comes... Uh, and this is waiting for the initiation of the Spirit's regenerating work once Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. He says, it's good that I go, because if I didn't go, the Spirit would not come, the Helper would not come. But when he comes, and once he came at Pentecost, he then became readily available for all that put their faith in Christ. There, now, it's dangerous. I, I read this thing this week. It says, uh, you will be sorely frustrated if you try to build theological grids out of the writings of Luke, both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, because his emphasis is not a minutiae understanding of the inner workings of the Spirit. What he is meant to show us is the unique history of the birth of the church and the work of the Spirit outwardly and his impact as a witnessing missionary spirit. And so Acts chapter 8, where they had not yet received the Spirit, the, um, the Samaritans, uh, it's a 
It's a mysterious passage. Nobody's fully in agreement on why, that, why there was a delay. Um, and to build a theology that you can only receive the spirit if someone lays hands on you, it's, it's not meant to create a theological grid. It's meant to produce for us a very exciting history about a God who's sovereign, which means he's free to do what he wants to accomplish his goals. I think that that's the power of the book of Acts. And we're gonna, be, we're gonna begin Acts in September. Um, so I, I, I hope we'll have time to really dig more into this beautiful history uh, and be excited that God wants to continue to blow us out into the world that we might be a reflection of Jesus. But what does the fullness look like? So this new dynamic, this new power, it's the gifts that God gives uh, that can never be disconnected from God himself. What we are dealing with is that God literally comes alongside us to empower us through intimacy with him uh, to actually be a reflection or a, part, a partner, a participant in his kingdom purposes. And so the power of the fullness of the spirit is that what God is inviting us into through our faith in Christ is increasing degrees of intimacy where we actually know our king are known by him, because the more we know him, the more we recognize his voice, the more we will be able to then discern how it is he wants to use each of us to do his kingdom purposes. The fullness of the Spirit, I, I've sensed it. Uh, first of all, I never, I, I never had any desire to, for public speaking. I loved music. I was like a singer who would never say a word in between songs because I was so terrified of talking. Now, I've always had the gift of monologue. So God has the ability to take even our most dysfunctional qualities and redeem them for his good purposes. And so there was, a, there was this, the, the sense of the spirits moving even toward uh, pushing me toward pastoral ministry. And the fullness of the spirit was not all of a sudden I was like Superman. It was just there was a newfound boldness and confidence that actually I was usable in the hands of God in spite of my brokenness. That was one of the things that came out of the new birth, and it took time. It took time as I grew in my intimacy with Christ and I read the scriptures. I think one of the reasons people don't experience the fullness of God is because we spend all our time, instead of allowing God to speak to us of his person, of his character, revealing to us who he is through his scriptures, understanding who his son is, recognizing that he's a spirit that illuminates the mind and gives us comprehension. We instead, we don't take the time to get to know God. We just come to him with a list of things that we want from him. But show me any relationship that's healthy from that. My wife will say to me often, she'll say, Josh, you, it, it would take so, it takes so little to, to draw me out. And, that, and you know, it's so easy for me to be like, I'm gonna share with her everything I just read and then this is, the, this is the ultimate sign that you're a bad friend or a bad spouse, uh, is that you don't ever ask the people that you're with how they're doing or what's going on in their world. You just immediately launch into everything that's happening in your own life. Like, we, if we do that with people, I promise you, if you do it at all with God, or if you talk with God at all, that will be the primary thrust of, because he gives us human relationships as a way to reveal our own temperament uh, in our understanding of him. And the more that I take time to actually draw out my wife's heart, to understand what she needs, what her, is, I find more satisfaction because I'm able to grow in depth. 
And I think that our, the shallowness of our Christian lives is often that we aren't willing to put in the work in the relationship to actually experience the fullness that is so available to us. God is so ready to bless his children. We're not before Pentecost. It's, I do not believe that you have to sit around and wait and pray, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. In fact, you don't even see the church praying for the Holy Spirit to come. They pray for power from a spirit who is already there. And he comes in power. And they know he's coming in power because they already have him. They just want to be even more. They're like, what can I do to grow in intimacy? It's not, we don't need to pray that the spirit comes. What we need to pray is, Lord, forgive us for our, for our unwillingness to yield to your direction, to your control. So this permeation of the, of the spirit, I want you to recognize that the office of the Holy Spirit, is, as Major Ian Thomas said, is to make known to you and to make experiential to you all that Christ is in you. So powerful. Such a great statement. It's not only a new dynamic and a new, a new power, but it's a new principle altogether. Acts 4.31, and when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken And notice, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They already had the Spirit, but there was this unique manifestation of the Spirit's presence. When they prayed together, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Notice, the outcome of the Spirit's filling was a unique boldness to be a reflection of God. Powerful. I like, uh, Major Ian Thomas also said this about being filled. He said, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to allow him to occupy the whole of your personality with the adequacy of Christ. So beautiful. Being filled is something that we're commanded to do. In fact, Ephesians 5.18, it says, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. This is not given to us to show us that being filled, it's not created as a parallel to show us that to be drunk on wine is not what we need to be, but we need to be drunk with the Spirit. It's not the purpose. What the purpose of the verse is to show us the power of influence and that wine is a powerful influencer. It brings false joy. And even the Bible even promises it is something that, that can, it can be a symbol of joy, but drunkenness is false joy that leads to sickness and headaches and queasiness. <laughs> uh, the filling of the Spirit should not lead to headaches, queasiness, sickness, nor self-absorbed rantings that don't make sense, uh, as you often see, believe me, years of playing music at bars and having people throw beers on me while I perform. I, I, I refuse to believe that uh, if we were to become spirit-filled, that's, that's, uh, I think that the spirit can be unpredictable, uh, that he can cause a person to fall on their face and, and mourning over their own sin. I think that he can, his presence can become an overwhelming presence. But the focus of the influence of the Spirit is not self-absorbed focus. It's other-oriented. It's God's glory focus. If you're going to be unhinged, it's not because you're all of a sudden self-word, uh, which is what drunkenness does, but it's an influence that brings us out of ourselves and empowers us to actually... And I notice, you're not, you don't preach the Word with boldness if you're drunk. They were filled with the Spirit, and they preached the Word with boldness. I think that this... Is, and it speaks of the community of faith, faith doing this, not just the preachers. So I think that this is an important point, is that Paul is establishing that we have a responsibility to give ourselves, to immerse ourselves into the person of Christ, to be so aware of him, to recognize that the greatest gift that God gives is God himself, 
that we are a royal priesthood like the, like the Levites. They shall have no inheritance in the land because the Lord himself is their inheritance. This is necessary for our worship. It's necessary for our service. It's necessary for human existence. I think that we have, we have lost our way when we have forgotten that following Jesus requires the supernatural um, presence of his spirit actually dwelling with us and abiding in us. And so it forces me to ask the question is like, what is there that's supernatural about your life? Is Jesus seen in you? Do you radiate his presence? Or are you preventing the fullness of the spirit by grieving him? Ephesians 4.30, it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. One of the reasons I think Christians don't experience the fullness of God is because they continue to choose to live as if they're dead in their sin. The saddest, most pathetic people on earth are those that are half alive in Christ. Just enough faith to get saved, but not enough faith to live victoriously. And that's not what Christ wants for us. I mean, sin is only fun when you don't really think about it as sin. It's really lame when you know that you're blowing it because you know the scripture is just enough to, to not have fun doing it. Uh, you know, there is ignorance is not innocence, but it is bliss on some levels, uh, even though it might bring destruction. I think the saddest Christians are those that continue to live in the patterns of sin, but now they actually know what they're doing and they're miserable doing it. Uh, this, is, this is a grieving. If we would really believe that God's presence is with us, for you guys that are staring at pornography, that you recognize if you've been born again that that's what you're making the Spirit do with you. Do you really want to subject Jesus to that garbage, to that evil? The kinds of things that we fill our heads and our minds with, our obsessions with the vanity of our own, our own admirers, the, the, the longing and the lust to, for life and to be known, um, perverted to extremes that we see so prevalently in our culture right now. All of these things, we are subjecting the spirit to these things. It grieves him. It grieves him. And not only does it grieve him, but it's also possible that through our sinful activities that we extinguish his activity in our lives. In fact, this is why 1 Thessalonians says, do not quench the spirit. Think of the spirit as a fire. It's like pouring, pouring water on it. You just extinguish the very light. Have you ever seen that? My wife will say that, like when I get in a bad space or a self-absorbed space where I midlife crisis moment or whatever, we all have them. And she'll just say like, There's just, like you just don't have the light. The, that illumination. There's a, there's, a lack of, there's a lack of vibrancy right now because you're allowing the weight of this world, you're allowing the problems of life to override your ability to see Jesus through them. And, and I think that this extinguishes, it quenches the Spirit's um, influence in our lives. The suspension of his activity in our hearts removes power, joy, as well as communion with God. So what must we do to be filled? These, this is the question I wanna ask you. I like Tozer actually laid out just a few things. He says, before a man can be spirit-filled, he must be sure he wants to be. If the spirit takes charge of your life, he will expect unquestioning obedience in everything. He will not tolerate self-sins, self-love, self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-defense, or self-promotion. All must be confessed and put to death. Secondly, the desire to be filled must be all-consuming. The Holy Spirit has no patience for spiritual timidity. We have as much of God as we choose to have. I think that the spiritual agitation that comes naturally when we, when we recognize that we will not rest until we have more of him and less of us 
He convicts and convinces. And that more of him is not, like I said, getting more of Jesus, but it's this, it's like, I want more intimacy. I want more understanding of who you are. I will not rest until I press through and experience the victory that you've promised. I think that we're too easily defeated. Spiritual contentment is our enemy. You're either going closer to Jesus or you're moving farther away from him. There is no static position in faith. And I think that, that we should be, the only thing that should, should, we should be discontent with is how much of Jesus we currently have. The Lord wants us to continue to press into him, to grow in, in our understanding of him. God has given us all, all of himself that we will ever have, but our understanding of, of his presence, the intimacy that's available, I, am, I will not be content with anything less than more when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to understanding his ways. And I think that, that only until the comforts of the world comfort no longer and only the comforter remains can we truly expect to be fully filled because I think our lives are often filled with too much of this world and just simply not enough of him. All you have to ask yourself is what do you spend the majority of your day thinking about? What do you spend your time looking at? What are the ratios of your mental energies, your affections? How much is given to Christ and how much is given to things that actually have no eternal value. It's so important that we ask those questions. There are litmus tests. This should be the normal Christian experience to be spirit-filled. You have been born again, regenerated, which means you've been baptized into the body of Christ and a part of his community. You have unity uh, with, this, with this, this church. You have unity with God himself. And you have been filled and should continue to be filled uh, until the fullness of his presence is experienced moment by moment. We, are, we will never arrive at this life, but we should be moving toward an ever-increasing understanding of our God. Be filled with the Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you right now and recognize that we often choose the comforts of this world more than we choose you, the comforter. And we want to be a people that are spirit-filled, a people that recognize your presence and rest in your activity, empowered by your spirit. Jesus, we want to be a people that know you. And I pray that you would forgive us for the things that grieve your spirit. Lord, forgive us for the things that quench your activity, that hide you from the world. Lord, forgive us even for the things that we're not even aware of, for our unbelief. And Lord, we believe in you. Help our unbelief that we might be true conduits of your personhood, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord Jesus, we trust you to fill us, to empower us, to anoint us, to carry out your love and your gospel to the ends of the world. And so, Lord, we love you. We pray, Lord Jesus, come. Restore the world to what you intended it to be. But until that day, may we live faithfully, empowered by your spirit, hoping in you, in your return. We pray this in your name. Amen. We guys, we're going to go into a time of communion, a time in which we remember uh, the work of Jesus 
the bread representing his body broken for us, the cup representing his blood. And each week when we come to the table, I pray that it would be a spirit-infused experience by which the full realization that you're standing before God is based upon what he has done for you. I pray that the spirit would shine a floodlight on Jesus as you partake of the bread and drink of the cup. We give of what God has given to us in the offering boxes next to the communion elements as a way of participating in his kingdom moving forward in the city of Portland. Everything we are, everything we have belongs to him and we wanna contribute to that work. We pray for one another because God utilizes us as the very vessels by which the spirit is seen um, and experienced tangibly. And we wanna pray for you. If you need prayer today, there's people that'd love to pray with you on the sides and in the back. Uh, and then finally, we worship. And our worship needs to be done in spirit and in truth. Uh, and I just pray that uh, God would put a song upon your heart and that you would have that full freedom to just celebrate his life uh, in you and your life with him. Uh, so tables are open. Time is yours. Love you guys. So glad you're here today.